Maine, a place where you can find breathtaking scenery from sandy beaches, ice-capped mountains, and pristine lakes. A place you can enjoy a delicious lobster while sipping on one of Maine's finest craft brews and saving room for a blueberry pie. But the one thing many people may not know about Maine is the artistry and craftsmanship that comes with the culture of this beautiful state. From the Industrial Revolution to now, Maine has continued to build its economy through makers, and there are hundreds of them. Maine has makers that can handcraft a high-quality piece of wood furniture where the joinery fits like a glove. So a skirt made with plant-based fabric with a New England-made machine that was invented in 1881. Make a mean mustard through a cold grind process made in the same mill since 1900, and much more. Join me for a journey through the lives of makers from across Maine to hear how they get down with their craft. I'm Christian Vermeulen, and this is Makers of Maine. I didn't realize there was quite a history of pottery making in Maine. Back in the 1830s, William Fives was a famous potter who was a part of Portland's Stoneware Company. He was known to be open-minded for his work, and his work was the focal point of Maine. But one potter that truly resonated with me was Benjamin Dodge. He began a redware pottery shop in Portland in 1789 at age 24. He wasn't like most potters at the time who sought to build a huge manufacturing empire. Instead, he kept it small. His specialty was elaborately decorated jars and pitchers. This gentleman reminds me of my guests on this episode. Benjamin's pieces were highly recognized by Marcus de Lafayette, who was a French aristocrat and military officer in the French Revolutionary War. Benjamin's son, Benjamin Jr., eventually took the wheel and continued the legacy of his father's work. It is amazing to me to see how family generations can continue a legacy and refine it and build it even further. I know my guests on this episode will teach their daughter their craft to continue their legacy as well. Kristen and Joe Camp started a pottery business five years ago and have handcrafted beautiful, unique pieces out of their location in Westbrook, uh, the Dana Warpa Mill. One pottery technique that they enjoy the most is raku, which you will hear more about in this episode. Without further ado, let's talk craft with Kristen and Joe Camp with Campfire Pottery. Well, thank you guys um, so much for being on the Makers in Maine podcast. It's a pleasure to have you guys on as I love your products and I've been to your black box store several times and picking up some mugs um, as well as the, the ramen um, bowl set. I recently got um, a, one for my mom um, for Mother's Day, so I was really excited for that. But um, so yeah, tell me a little bit more about yourselves and what you craft. So we do handmade pottery um, made in Westbrook, Maine, and um, we make it all ourselves in the studio. It's me. I work full time in the studio throwing the pots and we have um, Joe helps me out, but he works full time. Um, so he helps me out like the evenings and weekends. And then um, we've got Monica is our one, one employee and she helps with the, you know, the production process as well and like shipping and all the different aspects. Um, so yeah, so there's kind of like a team of, um, you know, like two and a half ish of us, you know, all working together to create all the, um, all the pottery and stuff. So yeah, our, our, our focus is really creating, you know, pieces that are going to inspire people to, to gather around the table and to share a meal. And, um, just like in the way that they decorate their home and just kind of creating that, um, you know, that small batch handmade pottery that just really inspires people to gather. So that's the, 
the basis of our, our business. Nice. So how did you guys get into this? I know both of you guys are of course heavily involved in this and like, how did the idea come about? So we actually started doing, um, I, t- I studied pottery in college. So um, I actually started doing painting first is like what I went to school and decided to study. Um, and I took a pottery class as an elective and just really like fell in love with it. It was like one of those things where um, painting was like a struggle for me. It was like, I could do it and I could do it well, but it was just never like something that just flowed naturally. And then um, I took my first pottery class and I was just like, wow, like I just felt like there was endless possibilities and ideas. And um, so I ended up switching my degree um, to three-dimensional studio art. And um, so, yeah, so pottery was my degree. And then Joe, do you want to share about how you got into pottery too? <laughs> uh, Kristen and I met um, after she had already graduated uh, with her bachelor's and ceramics and um so we i liked her a lot (laughs) and uh i thought it'd be a good way to to get to know her if i took a a ceramic class as an elective i had an elective i needed to fill and so i figured i liked him too so i was like yeah totally i'll help you learn pottery you know (laughs) yeah so i so i've taken one you know college level entry level (laughs) ceramics course yeah, we'd have like pottery nights and make dinner together and yeah. Oh, that's so yeah. sweet. I love that. Such a cute little yeah. love story. And where did you where did you guys go to college again? So I went to Bob Jones University or University, which is in Greenville, South Carolina. And then Joe went to Gordon College in um Georgia in like South Georgia, right, babe? Or where where was yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. South South Georgia. About an hour south of Atlanta. Are you guys both from Georgia? We are, yeah. We're both from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, so a little south of Atlanta in Jonesboro. Um, oh, so we grew up in the same town, but we didn't meet, like I said, after until college. Yeah. Yeah, after yeah. college. Oh, wow. And what brought you to Maine? So we actually moved to Maine to help with the church that was starting. So um, we moved up here, like our church back home was supporting this like church plant that was um, starting up here and Joe and I, um, we moved up to help with that. And Joe did like help with the worship team and playing music and sound and stuff like that. And then I ran the kids ministry. So like, I would just, you know, like I taught the kids and just, we helped with whatever they needed. And we were really only supposed to be here for like two years. And then we just like ended up putting down roots and fell in love with Maine and Mainers and, um, just like the community here. Um, so, you know, it just kind of became home and we we're like, I don't, I don't think we can leave. <laughs> oh, that's so, great. Yeah. So. so when um, you guys first started this business, kind of like thinking about the types of pottery you wanted to put together to get out there to not just the main community. I mean, you guys have expanded, you know, outside of Maine for sure. Um, tell me a little bit more about, you know, this specialty what you put towards behind your craft of pottery. Yeah, so, um, you know, we do a lot of work with um, Raku, which is like a Japanese firing technique. Um, And I feel like that's kind of one thing um, that Joe and I both did in college. We both like tried that out. Like when he took that class, he did a lot of Raku and I used to do it in school too. It was like very much a social thing because you have to sit around and like wait for the pottery to fire and 
Um, so I feel like that was kind of like what made me interested in it at first. It was just kind of like a thing you did with like in college, like with all your buddies and like, you, you know, spend, it takes a few hours to do, you know, it's like two hours, three hours or so, and you're just kind of hanging out. And so, um, so yeah, so that's kind of how it started for me. But then like the process is so unique. Um, like every single piece, even if you put it in the exact same glaze, just comes out completely unique and different. Um, and so I feel like that that's been a huge part of our, our business and like, um, just creating pieces that are really unique and different. Um, so that's, you know, that's a big part of what we make. Um, yeah. And then how about, um, the process, like from beginning to end, like how do you go about crafting a particular piece of uh, pottery, maybe like a mug or yeah. one of your planters. I would just love to yeah. learn more about like the details of the craft. For sure. So, um, you know, with the oftentimes, like when we're designing like a new piece, you know, it kind of is always like out of function and um, for us is like a big part of it. And um, so like, for example, our, our sandstone mug, which is one of like our classic pieces, you know, um, you start out with just like, you know, a block of clay and like every piece gets weighed out. So that, so there's consistency in the size and there's measurements for each piece. And, you know, like with throwing, I don't know if you've ever seen the process or not, but like, you know, you start out with this like lump and then you have to kind of center it on the wheel. Um, and then first yeah, you wedge wedge it. It. So that's the first part. <laughs> so like wedging the clay, kind of like working out the air bubbles and then like, um, you know, softening it, getting it prepared to work with. And then centering it on the wheel which is there's just so many cool metaphors with pottery and like life you know um so centering it on the wheel and like you know opening it up and then pulling up the walls there's just like all this beautiful process of like really um getting the piece to be symmetrical if that's what you're going for and um so yeah so there's the throwing process and then you know you're, you're you trim the piece after that um once it gets to like a certain dryness and um, you know, any attachments that needed added on like the handles and then, you know, you have to let it com get completely dry before you fire it the first time. And, um, and then the second firing, you glaze it before you dip it in the glaze and then fire it a second time. Um, so there's just like, it's a long process, but, um, you know, it creates a lot of patience, I think in the artist. <laughs> um, oh, sure. yeah. And so, so two firings for the process that we do, some potters, um, may do less depending on the type of firing they, they do. Uh, but most potters do, you know, uh, abyss firing and then also glaze firing for the pieces. Um, and each, each firing takes probably about 24 to 30 yeah. hours wow. from start to finish. Yeah. yeah. So what's the difference between you said bisque and clay? So glaze. So there's bisque oh, firing okay. is like the, the first firing. So it really like matures the, the clay and hardens it so that you can glaze it it kind of becomes like porous um so you can mm -hmm. dip it in the glaze and so like glaze is basically you know it's a mixture of chemicals that like when it's when it reaches a certain temperature and melts it kind of turns to glass almost um mm -hmm. so that's kind of that's how you get that like you know um sealed surface that's food safe and that you can like drink out of or you know put in the microwave or dishwasher or whatever it really just kind of um, the heat turns it to almost just like really it's glass is what it is. Um, and yeah, so there's the, the bisque and then the glaze firing is how, how it works. And then 
Are there particular products that you use depending on each technique or can you do it with all of your products? It doesn't really matter. Like different types of clay. So it's, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So there's like different um, temperatures that you can fire to. So there's, there's so many different types of clay and glaze. Um, it really depends on like what you're trying to make and, you know, like the, also the look that you're going for. Um, but like there's low fire clays. Um, we don't use those because they're, um, they're, they often they're like really, um, a little bit more porous, the, the lower firing, they're not as vitrified as the word. So like they don't seal as well. Um, so, you know, they can ship easily and such. Um, so we use like a mid fire, mid to high fire clay. Um, so there's like these cones basically is what they call them. And there starts like a zero and then it goes down. So like, like an O one and O two, and then it goes up, you know, like cone one, two, three, four, five. So we fire at like a, a five is what we fire at. Um, and yeah, it's just like, it refers to like the matureness of the clay and like what you can do with it. And, um, you know, like what we fire at allows us to, to like, you know, our clay to be microwave safe or dishwasher safe and like really functional for the home. And that's, that's why we fire to that temperature. Interesting. I had no idea that you had to set it at a certain temperature in order for it to be microwave safe. That right. totally makes sense now because yeah. whenever we use, my husband and I use your guys' products, we're always nervous. We're like, oh my goodness, should we put this in the dishwasher? Yeah. Should we put it in the microwave? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's really interesting. I, I, I loved hearing that. And um, the other day I noticed you guys um, were doing an Instagram story on the particular uh, rock food process of like outdoors. Like tell me a little bit about that. Like yeah. is that same concept, but just different technique? Yeah. So, so Raku is like just one of the coolest processes. So it's like a Japanese technique um, and um, it was used for like ancient um, tea ceremonies. It's like what the process was created for. So you, you fire it outside um, it's, and it's like a lower, it is a lower temperature that you're firing at. Um, so basically we'll create the pieces and then we'll do that bisque firing that I was telling you about um, to prepare the clay. And then you, you know, you dip it in the glaze and then we have this outdoor kiln. It's actually on our friend's property, which is awesome because we live in a condo. So we don't have like an outdoor space. <laughs> um, so you fire it. Um, it, babe, do you know like the temperature is? It's like we very much do it by eye. It's like a, it's a, yeah, it's a gas, um, like a propane torch that kind of goes up mm -hmm. into the kiln. Um, wow. Yeah, so it's a gas tank, just like would be on your grill, and then we have a torch on the bottom of the kiln. Right. Um, I'm not 100% sure of the temperature. We just we look in the kiln and. When, we uh, should know, but we don't. <laughs> <laughs> we should know. Do it by touch, do it by eye, right? But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you do it by eye. We, we have a, a people on the side of the kiln and we can look in and see when the glaze, it, it kind of bubbles up on the side and you can tell it's getting liquidy and then it kind of flattens out and gets really glossy looking. Right. Hmm. and that's the point where we we actually pull it out right so you shut it off um, you shut off the gas turn off the fire yeah. and then open the kiln and you can pull it out so yeah it's really hot i think it's around like 16 1700 degrees yeah jeez that's yeah. Cool. might be wrong yeah <laughs> and how long does that take really hot that just that it, overall process about two hours yeah. to fire oh, wow. well an hour and a half yeah yeah, or up to two hours, depending on the weather too, because we do it in the winter sometimes yeah. and it's cold, so it takes a little longer. 
Um, but Joe has to wear this like fireman suit. So it's like this really shiny, like metallic moon walking kind of looking suit. It's kind of yeah, hysterical. It's, it's super hot. Yeah, it's not, it's not comfortable to wear. He thankfully <laughs> does that. Um, but it's really interesting because you pulled it. So he's, he's wearing this big fire suit, which is really clunky. And then he's got these like tongs to like pull the big, they're like, these pieces are like glowing hot red because um, they're so hot. Yeah. And so he's pulling them out and we have like trash cans, um, metal trash cans that we fill with um, like wood chips. And um, so as he puts them in the can, I'm like kind of directing him and talking him through it. And I'm putting wood chips over top to protect the next layer so they don't stick together because the, the glaze is really like molten at that point. Oh, wow. um, yeah, so if you touch them together, they would they would end up sticking yeah, they'd and fuse. fusing yeah. wow. together. Yeah. Has that ever happened? Yes, it happens yeah. a lot. <laughs> Sometimes if we get them apart quick enough, we can sand it down and it's smooth oh, and it's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but it does definitely happen often because it's he's and moving I, as fast. I sometimes drop pieces. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. And oh, break yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That probably kills you. You're like, oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. So yeah. So then, so once they're in the can, you put the lid on top and and like basically let the smoke just kind of, um, like let this like reduction type thing happen inside the inside the cans. And then as soon as we've filled all the cans and put the lids on, we come back around and we do what's called burping. So it's like where you open the lid and kind of fan it with this like, basically you're trying to relight the flame to get it to smoke a little bit longer. Um, and then and then we once we're done with that process, we pull them out with tongs and put them in a, in a bucket of water and it kind of enhances the crackle effect in the, um, the pieces. So Yeah, so from the time we pull them out of the kiln, they probably sit in the barrels. 20 25 minutes and then we yeah we pull them out and then dunk them in water wow. so they cool down super fast wow. and that's what creates the the crackling like in most of the raccoon we do is a white uh crackle look mm -hmm. um and that's one of the reasons it's not really food safe um because you know you could have bacteria growing in those you know in the cracks because it's not water basically okay. because of the crack so it would seep through so we don't really sell it as dinnerware because because of that yeah <laughs> liability issues right that makes sense so what which products of yours take on the raku process so we use them they're they're perfect for like planters so like um you know water can go in them but like it, it would be like if you put water in a terracotta pot eventually you get some like moisture in the bottom so basically like it's great for planters. It's great for like, um, we make a lot of one of a kind Raku vessels. So these like more art, art type pieces, um, you know, like you can put flowers in them. You just have to put like something under like cork underneath them to protect like a wood surface or whatever, if you want to put water in them. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's a really great piece for like more sculptural or uh, technique or sculptural pieces or for planters or, um, anything that doesn't need food in it. So, <laughs> yeah. You were telling me, Kristen, the other day about this uh, interior design project that you're working on with a designer out in Seattle. Yeah. Is that going to take on the Raku process as well? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So we we love working with interior designers. Um, we've got there's a few in Portland that we've been working with, just like you know for custom gifts for clients or. Um, the newest project that we're working on is like a lighting project um, for the designer 
um, in Portland, but the client is in Seattle. Um, and so we're, we're making this like really beautiful multi-piece um, light fixture. So it's not Raku, it's gonna be in our like marble sandstone look, um, but we're really excited about it. It's, you know, like um, I think there's like seven or eight pieces dropped down in this like different pattern, um, just kind of creating these like layers. Um, and there's like actually multiple like pieces hanging off of like the, there'll be like a, the piece with the light bulb in it and then multiple pieces hanging below it. Um, so it's just going to be this really gorgeous like sculptural um, type art piece, but we're working on like um, an interior design membership that will, you know, have this like lookbook that we'll send out to them with like the sample tiles so they can show their clients and um, you know, we'll open up to them for like some custom pieces like I'm talking about um, and, um, you know, kind of offering these like opportunities to shop for their clients, you know, before things are released to the public. So there, there's just a lot of opportunity for um, working with these designers and their clients and just kind of creating a special um, you know, opportunity for custom That's great. pieces. great. It sounds like the custom pieces is, yeah. uh, it sounds like a very exciting opportunity for you guys to take on since it's something very unique and different from your just everyday products that you guys make. Um, yes, yeah. it is. And yeah. uh, so tell me, what are your guys' favorite products out of your collection? I think my favorite is probably just our our sandstone mug and the white speckle. Um, just because we drink a lot of coffee. We have a 15-month-old daughter Florence and uh the you know the 5 five thirty wake up call requires lots of coffee so that's just kind of life-giving for us right now <laughs> um so yeah I'd say the the sandstone uh sandstone mug is probably my my favorite piece simple nice and how about you Kristen I love the salad bowl like I guess it depends on like if you're asking to make what my favorite is to make or versus to use like for to use I would say the salad bowl is my favorite because um we like eat pretty much every single meal out of our low salad bowls and um we really need to rename it to the everything bowl um <laughs> but but yeah so the those are my favorite to as far as use goes but then I'd say for making I love making anything that's raku just because it's so special and every piece comes out so different that's great. And uh, I would have to say my favorite piece is the one that I um, custom made in your shop for my 30th Yay! birthday, which is my oyster plate. Yes. Oh my that goodness. Awesome. So great. Yeah. I feel like, I, so um, just to go back in time for my audience. So I was uh, turning uh, 30 years old and I was pregnant. It was like, about to pop. I was gonna say I'm you were very pregnant. Plate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you poor thing. Your back was like hurting from standing. I felt so bad. But it was so much fun yeah. just to learn more about the technique and the concept. And I would say I am not creative when it comes to pottery. Like I took classes in school and I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm doing this for my 30th birthday. But I'm so glad I did because Kristen yes. was phenomenal oh. and really just taught like everybody in that class so well and that's um, a lot of I, fun. I love my oyster plate for sure so tell me um about your black box shop so yeah. uh just um to kind of to clue our uh, audience in on this black box experience so pretty much it's a concept of taking is it like a 
tractor trailer like it's a shipping it's a container, sh- okay. yeah. shipping shipping container, container. Yeah. which you typically see i guess on tractor trailers totally. but uh but um that is pretty much built into a retail store right. so it's small yet simple and um i believe a, fa- a couple here in maine started that and uh so w- what got you guys into um that uh type of retail concept yeah so um it was actually it was really i feel like pretty lucky um joe was driving down washington ave um I think it had to have been like the day they put the sign out for this new shop like concept. And, um, you know, we had been talking about a retail shop for a really long time, but it felt just so out of reach with the way rent is and in Portland. Um, and so when we saw this, it was just kind of like, Oh, like this could be the perfect opportunity because it's small and like the whole concept behind it. Um, so is, you know, for it to be like a small business kind of incubator and allow, um, small businesses to try it out without like a high risk. So, um, Mm. basically you can, you know, it's month to month. Um, and, uh, as far as like the lease goes and, and it's, you know, pretty reasonable, like, right. It's very small. So you're not paying for like a lot of square footage. So I feel like that was something that was really appealing to us as a new business and just like not knowing how it's going to go. Um, so Jake is our landlord, um, from the Dayton group. And so, um, he's, he's got a lot of properties on there, but his whole like vision and concept for this was to like create a, like a low risk opportunity for businesses to just, to try it out, try retail. Cause it's a scary thing. You know, it's like a lot of overhead to, to put into, um, you know, to space. And so when Joe saw the sign, we were like, oh yeah, let's, you know, let's, let's find out more about this as quickly as possible. Cause those are going to get snapped up. Um, yeah. I think when I saw this sign, there was already, I think at least two or three of them were already rented and there's, yeah. there's a total of five. So we, we jumped onto this. Yeah. Within an hour so of um, sign. our friend Tanya, who we share the shop with, so her business is multiply and she, um, she designs, um, like handmade goods that are all made in Nepal. So it's all designed here, handmade in Nepal. Um, so anyways, I gave her a call and I was like, Hey, you know, there's a space that's opening up on Port on Washington Ave, which like, you know, it's kind of booming with all the new restaurants and stuff. And she, I was like, what do you think about sharing a space? She's like, yes, yes, yes. You know, like let's do mm-hmm. this. And so she just was really open and ready to do it. So that's kind of how it all happened to start is how we got into that space. Um, just wanting to try it out and see how, how it goes, you know? So. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's, that's great. And you guys get a lot of foot traffic in there. I mean, I know, with pandemic you probably yeah. get too much but in a normal life did you guys typically get a lot of uh, foot traffic there yeah it's definitely like a, a bustling street which has been awesome um it's I feel like we've had our fair share of like hurdles to overcome um just with like construction like the so the project was delayed um was it three or four months babe do you remember yeah it was it was like four, four months, four months and I got pregnant, like right in there around that time. And then, so, you know, we were like with the, with all of that going on. And then like the day, like the week we opened, they started tearing up Washington Ave with construction. Oh, wow. Um, so it's just kind of been like one thing, you know, and then having the baby. So having Florence, so it's been like this wild ride, but, um, like the foot traffic when there's not construction going on has been really good. Um, good. But it has been like a majority of the time that we 
have been open, except for in the dead of winter when it's, you know, a little quiet on that street. Um, <laughs> so it's been, it's honestly, it's been an awesome experience, even like without all of those hurdles that we had to like jump over. Um, this, it's just like a really wonderful neighborhood. There's just so many great restaurants and so many small businesses and people just are really excited about what's happening on that street. And um, so we're really grateful to like get to be a part of that neighborhood. That's great. And tell me a little bit more about the mill that you guys um, have your studio at in Westbrook. Is there any history to that mill that you're in? Or um, do you have people come to your mill um, to shop there as well? Um, I don't have the dates in front of me, but it's the, it's the Dana Warp Mill. Um, it was a uh, cotton warp, um, I think 1866 yeah. to 19, yeah, 1958. It was an operational uh, cotton warp mill um, run by the Dana family. Um, that's about the extent of what we, we know about what it, what it, what it <laughs> used to be. Um, but it's cool to see it, see it yeah. now, you know, I don't know how long it, it might have laid dormant. I think there was a mattress factory in there at one point. Um, I think it's been several different things since then. Um, but now there's just a lot of smaller studio spaces. Um, like there's a dance studio in there. There's um, there's another potter that just moved in about a month ago. Um, candle maker. Um, yeah, it's just cool to see all the, the small businesses that are kind of bringing new life to the to the mill. And do you guys have uh, people um, come to your studio to purchase any of your products or do you offer any uh, like um, classes or anything at your studio? Yeah, so we do, we do the workshops. Um, obviously with the pandemic, we've taken a break from that for now. I'm just kind of waiting to, to get those started back up, but that is a big part of our business is the creative workshops, which we, um, you know, usually offer like three to four um, each year of just like, you know, you can come and like make a mug or, you know, we did the oyster platters like with you and um, we've done a lot of workshops in our space and we've also like gone out and done them in other locations, um, like at the oyster shop on Washington. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely great for that. We used to sell out of it before our retail shop, but now we mainly just sell from our retail shop for, for shopping purposes um and just use it for for the workshops yeah there's yeah. there's not really foot traffic because we're up on the, the second floor in the building so mm -hmm. it's not easy to just you know see us and, and pop in oh i'm <laughs> you, sure you have to make an yeah. effort to, to find us in the building <laughs> it's a big building uh, oh yeah I, I it's very it's crazy how they renovated it and including so many businesses so i'm happy yeah. that i'm they're doing that in that mill yeah. um so lastly, I really wanted to talk to you guys about uh, the recent uh, sort of campaign that you guys created um, during this pandemic um, about uh, giving a mug um, at, to the frontline workers when somebody purchases a mug. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Yeah, for sure. So um, we just, you know, we really wanted to find a way to give back um, during the pandemic. It's just, you know, there's so much going on and just so many people struggling and hurting and having so much extra um like work and pressure on them from, you know, especially the healthcare workers. And so we wanted to do something just to appreciate and love on them. And, um, you know, like our, our resource that we had to give back with was pottery. So, we, you know, we decided to do the stay at home mug project for people that were quarantining and staying at home. You purchased a mug and then every five that we sold, we were 
donating one to-go mug to a healthcare worker. So when they purchase the mug, they can nominate a healthcare worker. Um, and then we would just draw from those names. And we actually, the project's still going. Um, we're still continuing to donate them. We've we sold 150 mugs, which is so awesome. And that's really that's helped great. us as a business to, to survive the pandemic, you know. Um, and then we've been able to donate, um, is that 30, babe, uh, 30 to-go mugs? You can do the math. He's an accountant, not me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think we've shipped out yeah. 30, 30 to-go mugs so far, which has just been so fun and, like, um, just awesome to hear from the healthcare workers and, you know, like, excited to just get some kind of treat at the end, you know, of their hardworking week they've just been working so hard to keep people um healthy so yeah thank you guys for doing that I think that's such a creative way of giving back um especially with your uh pottery collection um so the last question I always end with with each of uh my guests is why Maine why do you would you did you establish your business here in Maine and how has it helped you being in the state so I just feel like Maine is so special. There's, um, it's just like the, the coolest community of people that just really like care about where their pieces, their, the things they're adding to their home. Um, I just feel like everybody's very conscious of how they're, how they're spending their money and who they're spending it with. Um, I feel like they just want, they want a piece that tells a story. They want to support their local economy. You know, they want to know that it's being made ethically and sustainably. And, um, so that's just been really special and helpful to our business because people are just, they really care about the community. And I, I just, I, I, I'm sure there are other places in the States that have that same thought process, but this is the first that we've lived in a community that just cares so strongly about, about small businesses and the community. So that's definitely been huge for our business. Um, you know, so that's, I think that for us is why, why Maine and it's just so beautiful when, live here. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to Makers of Maine. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast as there'll be many more makers to come. If you'd like to check out Campfire Pottery's products, I'll link their website in the notes section of this podcast. Also, please don't forget to follow Makers of Maine on Facebook and Instagram to see visuals of these beautifully crafted products. Now, to introduce to you our future musician of this episode is the Jacob James. Jacob Greenlaw has been playing music in Maine for over 14 years now and always had a passion for rock and roll, punk, and power pop. He joined forces with Bill a year ago to form the Jacob James. They are both based out of North Haven and their jams are awesome. This is their song, Live It Up. I'll link their website in the notes section as well. Thank you all again and stay safe and healthy.